Welcome to the History Nerd United Podcast. I'm your head nerd, Brendan. Thank you so much for being here. Wait a second. I said season two was over. Season three doesn't start till January. What am I doing here? Well, nerds, listen, we had a few podcasts in the archives, right? It was, we were still figuring out sound. It was still very early, but I had these awesome interviews with these great authors. And so I talked to our producer, Mike, and we said, well, how about we give everyone three presents during the holidays, right? So here is present number one. This is my interview with Ed Langle, his book, Never in Finer Company, The Men of the Great Wars Lost Battalion. World War I book, absolutely love this book. Really enjoyed talking to Ed. This needed to be heard by people. So here's present number one. Keep your eye out for present number two and present number three throughout the week. Let's do it. All right, Ed, thank you for being here. Wanted to start off with your book, Never in Finer Company, about the Lost Battalion of World War I. Uh, first thing I want to say, as somebody who's reading constantly lately, awesome title for the book. Uh, I'm finding lately I'll read a title of a book, I'll dig into it and say, this title doesn't fit, but this one seems perfect. Was, was that your idea, or did somebody else say we should do with this? Well, thank you, Brendan. Uh, first of all, I'd say those words are, are not my own. They were the words that uh, Charles Whittlesey, who is the leader of the Lost Battalion, will be speaking about, spoke to his friend and colleague, George McMurtry, just as they were being liberated from the pocket in the Argonne Forest. And he said, George, we will never be in finer company than we are today. And George McMurtry, uh, at the end of every meeting of the Survivors Association after the war, used those same words in raising a toast. I thought of a couple of different options. I even polled my online audience to see what they thought would be an appropriate title, and everybody agreed that, that those words meant so much. Uh, so I, I think it kind of came to me as a gift rather than something I imagined. And I think it's it's perfect because, you know, with having them actually say it and then pulling it, it, it's, it means a lot to what's going on. And as you're going through the book, it just gets more powerful and more powerful as you read about everything that they went through. Uh, what for you made you think, okay, I want to dig into this story again, right? And this isn't necessarily something that's very well known. You know, World War One historians would know about the Lost Battalion. Um, is that something you looked at this and said, this is a story that, you know, needs to be told? Or did you kind of see it from a different angle and that's the way you wanted to tell it? It's a combination of things. I've been fascinated by World War One for over 30 years now, and the fascination derives from my interest in the personal experience of warfare. Uh, I'm a fanatical reader of World War I memoirs and diaries and uh, letters. I'm interested in how people, men and women, experience the, the unprecedented, the overwhelming things that they, they had no way of expecting, how they process it, and how they deal with it for the remainder of their lives, because I think it, it says so much about the human condition. I have written on the Battle of the Meuse Argonne and another book called To Conquer Hell, and a lot of Americans don't realize that the largest and bloodiest battle in the history of our country took place in World War One. The Meuse Argonne with 26,000 young men killed, most of them in the space of about three weeks, with over 100,000 other casualties. It dwarfs just about any other battle we've been engaged in. And, and it's something that had a huge impact on our country afterwards that that also is generally recognized. And so there are a lot of, there are a lot of fascinating actions within this, this titanic struggle. But one of them, the, the story of the Lost Battalion, 
seemed to me to speak to that human angle that that interests me so much. Uh, and I zeroed in on the stories of four men, uh, two of them, Charles Whittlesey and George McMurtry, were in the pocket that the Lost Battalion and experienced that, uh, later became Medal of Honor recipients. A third uh, sergeant, or then Corporal Alvin C. York, who was known to most people through the Gary Cooper movie, Sergeant York from 1941, uh, happens to be my third cousin. And um, I'm very, my family is uh, rooted up there in the mountains of Kentucky and Tennessee, and uh, I know his family. And um, he was involved in the action that liberated the Lost Battalion. And then you have the fourth individual, the journalist Damon Runyon, who told the story of the Lost Battalion. Each each one of these men experienced this this event in a different way. Each of them processed it in a different way. And and I think it, it just it's a story that provides lessons for the present day, uh, both painful lessons but also uplifting lessons. So it was compelling for me. And, and there is that through line of almost forecasting how PTSD is going to really affect all of them after the war and after all of these things have happened. And we're learning a lot more about it now, you know, actually understanding what it is and how these things will affect us. Was that something that came through in just your research, or was that something you kind of had in the back of your mind to take the reader through and kind of drop hints along the way that there's going to be mentally a severe price to pay, even if they survive physically? That's a great question. It's it's a combination of both, really, because one of the one of the lessons I feel that I have I have learned over the years is that from studying World War One personal experiences is that each individual experiences these things in a different way. It depends upon their own personality, their own upbringing, their own outlook, and each one takes away different lessons, and we can learn from those lessons. They're individual lessons. They're personal lessons. Um, so I think that that belief was confirmed in my study of these four men in the Lost Battalion. Uh, there's, a, there's a body of thought that, that's been going on for a while, which I think is just wrong, that looks at say World War One and other wars too, and says, well, pretty much all soldiers experience war the same way. You know, the the narrative of disillusionment that all soldiers came into this war naive, all of them were broken and disillusioned, and all of them were crushed by it in the same way. I just think that's that's wrongheaded. I feel that this shows the truth of that. Uh, but also, I will say that in in reading the stories and trying to tell the stories of these four men, I learned dimensions of the human experience and the human spirit that I just didn't understand before then. The stories are, are so intense, and at times they're difficult to process, difficult to understand, but, but I think they provide an enlightenment that, that many many people, uh, including veterans, will relate to today. And I think there's a, it was a funny thing that I think, I, I know I said, and a few of my friends said, and probably as a feeling through the military, when you think about it, is that, you know, people will say, oh, do you ever want to win the Medal of Honor? And most of the time, if you're in the military, your answer will be, well, no, because I'm probably dead. Uh, you know, that's the first thing. But also, as you see in this book, and you see larger, when you look at a lot of Medal of Honor winners who survived, they really had very tough times 
after awarding it, usually because they were in such horribly stressful, horrific situations. And yes, they survived and they did these heroic things. But as we said, there's a price to pay after that. And, you know, it seems we're just now starting to get a handle on how to deal with the aftermath of those things. Well, that's right. None of these, none of these four men went into the war seeking to be a hero, to become a hero. And that includes the journalist, Dana Runyon. But none of them was, was looking to, to achieve honor or, or distinction. They were all motivated by a sense of responsibility and duty and doing their best. All of them were to some degree haunted after the war. I think it's safe to say that certainly Whittlesey, McMurtry, and York were all deeply tormented by survivor's guilt, deeply. Uh, to some degree, even Damon Runyon, I think, felt, felt guilty deep down inside for, for having made it out. You know, when so many of their friends and, and buddies did not. For each of them, the burden was very heavy. But I think each of them made choices for how they carried that burden. And the choices that they made is where I think the, the value is for, for people today. And it's a hypothetical for you from, you know, a leadership perspective, specifically on Whittlesey and McMurtry. You really do a great job of kind of contrasting their characteristics and the way they kind of carry themselves and how they work through that. Whittlesey was more, you know, uh, self-contained, um, kind of kept his emotions very much in check to the point that he was almost completely stoic, where McMurtry was almost kind of more of the cheerleader type. Um, and it was interesting to me as I was reading it that I just thought these two guys needed to be this way for each other that I wonder what would happen in that situation if one of them wasn't there, that Whittlesey needed to be that rock that everyone looked to, where McMurtry had to be that guy going to each of the foxholes, showing kind of almost a happy face at the worst possible times. Um, was that something you thought about, too, as you're reading it, that they were very lucky in this horrible situation to have those two types of leaders right next to each other? Yeah, they balanced each other uh, in a lot of ways. So Whittlesey's background was that uh, he came from a well-to-do family. He went to Williams College and then Harvard Law School. He was very much an intellectual. He, he, he was interested in military history, I think, just from the broad philosophical point of view. He read a lot of classical history and, and the like, but, but he wasn't really what you'd call a military guy. Uh, he was interested in politics to some degree. I think he dabbled in socialism. But he was, he was a very idealistic uh, young man who, who believed that he was put on earth to try to make the world a better place. He had a powerful sense of responsibility, as I mentioned, that he, uh, and he felt that responsibility not just you know, broadly to his fellow men, but to his, to his country. So before the war, he joins in what's called the Plattsburgh Movement to, uh, to train, uh, even as a civilian and to, to learn basics and athletics, physical fitness, discipline, drill, training, and all the rest, uh, but more than anything else, to, to get the sense of his responsibility to lead uh, so that when the war begins, he, he feels, I'm responsible. You know, I have to, I have to go and lead uh, and do my part. But he still, when he gets into action, 
he still is very much the intellectual uh, and the idealist, and it, it gets awkward at times. He's um, he's trying so hard to do the right thing. You know, in that pocket, he crawls from shell hole to shell hole, uh, from funk hole to funk hole, talking to each one of his men, trying to buck them up. And sometimes the things he says are just silly. You know, he'll he'll uh, harken back to the lessons of the Indian mutiny in the 1850s and the siege of Lucknow. And the men have no idea what he's talking about. Um, but they know that he's there. He shows absolute calm and, and self-possession and dedication. McMurtry has the similarity in that he feels totally responsible uh, to his fellow men, to his country. He's similar also in that he comes from a fairly well-to-do background uh, he has seen combat before, although it was in the Spanish-American War, and not very intense combat. He's in his 40s. He's older than Whittlesey. He uh, is a. He also went to Harvard Law School, but he's a millionaire stockbroker when the United States enters the war. But feels the same same uh, dedication since he has to, has to go up and serve. They end up in the same unit with Whittlesey, a major, McMurtry, a captain. McMurtry is very much more a gruff, physically robust type of leader. He's a disciplinarian. His company, Company E, is regarded as the best drilled unit in the whole division uh, and gets awards for that. He has affection for his men, but it's not the same type of uh, high-blown idealism and certainly not. He's not an intellectual in any way. He's, he's, he's just a rough kind of soldier who feels that responsibility. And they do balance each other out. They come to depend upon each other. And that mutual dependence, as it does for men under the stress of combat, develops into a deep sense of solidarity and understanding. That's something that that special bond that develops that carries them after the war as well. And especially talking about that solidarity that you just said, what I found really, really interesting is in very stressful combat environments, it can veer very much into scapegoating, right? Where you're you're fighting the enemy, but you can turn internal. And there's, you know, two instances here where you have the one lieutenant who, you know, wants to surrender, and then you have uh, the soldiers taken prisoner and bring back the letter, where those are the types of situations if... With, uh, once again, Whittlesey and McMurtry, the way that those two weren't ultimately scapegoated, there was, you know, some pushback and things of that nature, but that can go very, very wrong under completely different circumstances with, you know, just straight up field executions and things like that. I thought that was very descriptive of how tightly together that they came, that there wasn't scapegoating internally, that they really tried to push it outside. Yeah, there a couple of levels here. I, I had the good fortune while I was writing this book. Uh, I went to a baseball game with uh, Rick Atkinson and also um, Lieutenant General Ben Freakley, who commanded 10th Mountain Division and was in Iraq. And I talked with them about, uh, especially Ben, about this concept of, of leadership and responsibility. And he you know, helped me to tease out this point, you know, when, when this um, battle takes place, the lost battalion is surrounded and the men, 600 men in there and their officers are fighting for their lives. There's a tremendous contrast. If you look at the commander of the division, 77th division, general Alexander, 
the commander of the brigade and even the commander of the regiment, 308th uh, Regiment, one thing all of them have in common is that they say, I'm not responsible. This isn't my fault. That's their first, their first emphasis. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And it's not my responsibility. Um, Alexander is more than happy to take credit to claim that he rescued the Lost Battalion after it happens, which he didn't. Uh, but during the battle, he's trying to shift the blame the whole time. But if you look by contrast at Whittlesey and McMurtry, what are they? What is their attitude? They're saying, "I'm responsible." So it's not. It doesn't matter who's at fault for getting us in here. What matters is that right now. I'm responsible to try to save the life of every man in this pocket and to try to get us out of this situation. So they don't scapegoat uh, at all. And, um, you know, when, when there is the, the, there are a few men in a, in a funk hole, Lieutenant Maurice Wren, who's had his, his foot almost severed and shattered um, by enemy machine gun bullets, that he's in intense pain. Uh, he's wondering if he's going to lose his leg from gangrene. Uh, he's in there with a sergeant and a private, and they start they start asking that natural question: Is it worth holding out uh, if it costs the lives of men who will die needlessly? And that's that's the the equation that always has to be asked. Um, and they suggest surrender uh, as a possibility to Whittlesey. Whittlesey goes over and he talks with Wren privately, uh, things, saying things that nobody knows what he said. Uh, and then he says publicly for everybody else to hear, if anybody else suggests surrender, they'll be shot on the spot. That's for public consumption. Privately, he talked to Wren, and, and they seem to understand each other. Uh, we can only guess at what they said. Uh, likewise, when a, a man who has been captured by the Germans, uh, a Hollingshead, is sent back to Whittlesey and McMurtry with a letter from the German commander suggesting surrender, uh, Whittlesey and McMurtry both just kind of smile. Uh, they don't blame Hollingshead. They don't uh, try to blame anybody else. They just say, we're, we're all in this together and we're going to stick to it. Those I think a lot can be learned from those attitudes and those contrasts. It reminds me of one of my favorite anecdotes about Eisenhower right before D-Day, how he wrote two letters, whether or not it succeeded or if it failed. If it succeeded, it was, oh, my soldiers did all of it. And if it failed, he said it was entirely on him. He made all the wrong mistakes and that he was the only one responsible for it. I always really like that anecdote from a leadership perspective of that's how it should be when you're kind of at the top level. Absolutely right. Uh, just at the, at the risk of diverging, that was that was a characteristic of Ike's throughout his career, and in fact, even as uh, president, when the uh, Gary Powers U-2 spy plane incident took place, the U-2 spy plane was shot down over the Soviet Union, and Powers was captured. That really wasn't Eisenhower's fault. Uh, his advisors had been pushing him to do it. He didn't want to send up the spy plane. They kept pushing him and pushing him and pushing him, and he finally said, okay, I'll send it up. And yet when it does get shot down and uh, Eisenhower realizes the cat is out of the bag, he says, it's my fault. It was my decision. Uh, I'm responsible. It's nobody else's fault. That, that's something that I think great leaders have, have always practiced. And you really brought it out in the book that 
a lot of people over Whittlesey just were really passing the buck the entire time or, or not paying attention as well. And that's how they got so overextended. They basically ran into a German buzzsaw because there was so much from the planning perspective of, oh, well, it's not me. Like, go ahead and do it. And then I want credit. But if you screw it up, this is on you. The argument to be made, though, and, and I've had a, a few people who have served as officers in the military tell me this, that much as your heart reaches out to Whittlesey and much as you understand his dedication, he did fail in, in one way, and he failed in that he went too far. He went, and, and Ben Freakley has mentioned this to me too, in that he, he took that burden so wholly upon himself, he felt such total guilt and responsibility that it eventually destroyed him, and that he, he failed to, to observe that as a leader, you take responsibility, you care about your men, you do your best for them, but you ultimately have to understand that an officer needs to make decisions like this. And some, some you know, men may, may not survive that decision, but you have to do it all the same. Um, Whittlesey, but again, Whittlesey was not a professional soldier. Uh, he wasn't trained to understand that. So your heart goes out to him, but at the same time, you wouldn't, I think, want to put that as an example to be pushed too far. Right, and I would, uh, I would kind of stick up for him a little bit. While I was not as good an officer as he was, it's there's also that pull of with the command climate that you talk about, where people are put, passing the buck and also just replacing people left and right with all of this stuff going on and this constant churn. When you do get in, put in charge of soldiers and you feel so responsible for them, you also kind of get gun-shy about doing anything that would take you away from them because you start to feel like, rightly or wrongly, uh, these soldiers are mine and I have to look out for them. I don't want somebody else who may not care as much in charge of them under certain conditions. And, you know... It, I never got up to the upper upper echelons of the military, so maybe it would have changed if you know I ever got to those heights. Um, but there's a reason why um, those levels of the military are called echelons above reality, meaning that they've completely forgotten what it's like to actually be on the battlefield, and now they have to make decisions without maybe necessarily remembering what it's like. And that was certainly true in the in the 77th Division. Um, Alex, General Alexander Robert Alexander. In his case, he had never seen combat. I mean, he was uh, he was himself a uh, a lawyer before the war, who had political aspirations, who, who really had no understanding of what his men uh, were going through, uh, and that's true both before, during, and after. But even more than that, I don't think he made any effort to understand. He had the opportunity, um, just because somebody like Eisenhower, Eisenhower was never in combat. But nevertheless, he really cared for and made the effort to understand his map. Um, but you don't you don't always see that here. And it seems Alexander also, to piggyback on that, you know, you mentioned him having a real dislike of professional soldiers at the same time, like these officers around him that, um, you know, went to West Point specifically, who, you know, were supposed to be trained for those things. He really didn't want to interact with them, didn't want to deal with them. And when he could, he tried to really shove anything he could down their throats. So it's it's very interesting that, you know, this happens under his watch. And then, of course, when it's all said and done, it's he's such a wonderful person in his mind. 
Yeah, there was, during World War One. there was a fair amount of tension uh, among professional officers, West Pointers, uh, National Guard uh, officers, as well as those who had no military background like Alexander. But in Alexander's case, I think it was um, real narcissism uh, and, and personal insecurity that he knew deep down that he was not really fit for command, in, in my opinion. Uh, but he, he tended to overcome that by bluster and trying to bully and push his way to, to being obeyed. Um, and I see that just as a, as a personality trait just coming straight out of a, a narcissistic mind view. Yeah, it definitely comes through in, in the writing. And especially as a historian, you, you sometimes worry if somebody's, you know, shading things a certain way and stuff like that, except that you have plenty of, you know, direct quotes and orders given that you really just, you see that narcissism you're talking about come out in everything he does, especially afterwards. You can just see him wanting to hog as much of the spotlight as possible, even though he had very little to do with it, ultimately, except to say, keep going. You know, you can see his ignorance just in, in one gesture when the pocket is liberated and um, Alexander wants to be one of the first to arrive on the scene. And he rushes right up to Whittlesey, just walking right past the men who were surrounding Whittlesey, and grabs his hand and shakes it, says, congratulations, you're now a lieutenant colonel. I mean, what profound ignorance uh, that shows uh, on Alexander's part. And Whittlesey is said to have kind of looked away for a moment and then mumbled something uh, and then just stared at Alexander, which caused Alexander just to, to kind of bluster and, and stumble over his words and walk away. That just shows the, the complete disconnect uh, between them. Definitely. And, and Ed, kind of go into your writing process for this. What I really liked about the book is, you know, I could have read eight or 900 pages on this, and I'm sure in your research, you, you probably came up with a lot of things. So you kept this pretty tight. You, you have enough information for somebody who knows nothing about it to walk in get an understanding of the characters, get an understanding of the entire battle too, which is a tightrope with military things. You can fall into the trap of over-explaining to people who will have no idea what they're looking at, and then for the military crowd, under-explaining. Um, is that something when you're writing, are you the type that, you know, you like to keep it nice and succinct, or are you the type that writes hundreds of extra pages and then you have to come back and just edit it down, edit it down? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I... Uh... It's funny. I talked when I talked with Rick Atkinson about how how he writes, and the man's a multiple Pulitzer Prize winner and great military historian. He says that he polishes every sentence he writes as he writes it, so that you know he just goes through from beginning to end, and everything is is set and clear. His his books are very long, but they're beautifully written. In my case, what I do with every book is that I start out with the facts and the details. I do the research. And I just type those facts into a Word document. Um, usually what I have is big and bulky and incoherent. And then I run through it to write the basic prose text, to write the basic story. And that's usually too long. And then I write over it many times, trying to cut it down, say things clearly as possible. And I do try in the end to be very succinct. Uh, it's one of the things I've, I've learned is try not to be too wordy. Don't don't overwhelm your reader with a whole lot of data. The the point is to 
tell a true story that is an engaging and meaningful story, but it, but it's got to be a story. Uh, and I, I think, you know, it's got to be a story that has a human element. Otherwise, to me, I just, I tune out. And that's true as a writer and as a reader. Uh, but I think, you know, ultimately it's not, it's not my job in some ways to tell the story in books like this so much as it is to allow the participants to tell their own stories. Uh, I look, I look with total respect and awe at people of the past. I don't feel it's my job to look down on them so much as it is to kind of let them appear as they were. Um, when I look at Whittlesey and McMurtry, York and, and Runyon, I just, I'm fascinated by them and I just want their stories to, to emerge kind of on their own. And how do you find your stories, right? So like you said, always been interested in World War One. I. I know you've done a ton of work on George Washington. Uh, is that something where something hits you and it, it's like anything else? You're, you're inspired by it, you find it interesting, and then you dive into it? Or is this something that, you know, something gives you an idea and it just goes from there? Well, the, to be completely frank, the, the George Washington books that I wrote, I wrote while I was working as the director of the Washington Papers Project, uh, which, to be honest, was a job. It was, it was not ever something I really wanted to do. It was more something that, that came as an opportunity. And, and I enjoyed writing about Washington, but, but I didn't feel a real passion for, for that subject. Uh, World War I, to me, is, as I've described already, is a passion of mine because it's about regular people, uh, the stories that are in there. When I when I read about the war or I read about other human events, uh, I'm always on the lookout for stories that, that have that human element that are compelling and meaningful that maybe haven't, haven't been shown to the public before. Um, and, and this was one of them. I mean, I think this book as well as to conquer hell was profoundly an emotional experience for me. It, it was very hard to write at times. Um, and I don't want to be too maudlin about it, but when I, when I talk about Whittlesey sometimes um, in public, I, I just really have trouble controlling my emotions. Uh, and I feel the same way about York. I feel the same way about so many others. I think the primary, the primary quality that any good writer or historian has to have, or anybody who studies history, is compassion. I mean, you, you have to have it. If, if you don't empathize, if you don't feel compassion for the people you're writing about, then you shouldn't be writing about them. Uh, so that, that kind of motivates me. What, what pulls at my heartstrings, what gets my emotions and my, my feelings involved is generally what I want to write about. Right. And Another question, you know, just from a general writing perspective, is there anything, you know, you've written a few books now, is there anything that you could wish you can go back and tell young Ed, oh, hey, by the way, you'll save yourself a lot of time by telling you this. Anything jump out at you? I think at times, um, and this was true when I wrote To Conquer Hell, I think at times as a writer, I've, I've veered more towards seeing the darker side of the 
of the human experience. And To Conquer Hell was a very dark book. And although I'm proud of it, I think I, I put more into writing that book than any other book I wrote. At, at times, it, it got to the point where it was oppressive. And that there were a number of personal reasons for that, but that's just how it came out. In Never in Finer Company, I went into it consciously with the approach that I need to try to elicit the whole gamut of human experience. This is not just about suffering and death and slaughter and making you want to cry at the end. This is about, hey, I can look at this war, I can look at these experiences, and I can find something to inspire me, something to build me up, lift me up. And that's true, now I hope for veterans who, who read this this account as well, but for example, in the, in the story of Alvin York, you know, here's, here's a man who, who was tormented, uh, who did not want to be a hero or treated as a hero. He didn't feel he was a hero, received the medal of honor and was deeply conflicted inside. And he decided the best way to process this, all of these crushing feelings that I'm having is by taking the celebrity and all the all the accolades that are given me and all the money that was given to him and focused entirely on giving to others. Uh, focused entirely on using that that wealth to raise up the poor people of East Tennessee. He kept nothing for himself. And he found he found tremendous peace that way. And and if you meet his family, you'll see the same thing. That 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 sense of peace and love is passed down through the generations. And there's one other man that I've, that I've met who's like that. Um, a few months ago, I had the honor of sitting down for a couple of hours with uh, Woody Williams, who is the uh, uh, Marine Medal of Honor recipient from World War II. He's one of the two surviving Medal of Honor recipients from, from that war. And we talked privately for an hour, and then we did a, a public discussion together. And Woody is one of the most amazing men I've ever met. He, he is a true, a true uh, inspiration. And, and I advise anybody, if you don't get to meet him, I mean, watch something that he's, he's put online. He, too, he, ha he had really difficult feelings from his experiences on Iwo Jima and, and elsewhere. And he decided after the war he was going to dedicate his whole life to helping other veterans and to helping veterans with PTSD uh, through a whole lot of different a whole lot of different initiatives, and that gave him uh, that gave him a profound sense of peace. That that giving, I think, was able in his case and in York's case to to in some ways transform the pain into into a sense of peace. You know, obviously, you can't make a a pronouncement, oh, that, that'll work for everybody, and that's, that's the way out. But I think it does offer one possible way forward. Uh, so, so that's the kind of thing that I feel like I've wanted to, to do more recently is, is learn to see what can uplift people rather than what can just kind of show the darkness of the human experience. What I took from you know, the story of Sergeant York is after the war was much harder for him than the actual activity that won him the Medal of Honor. When he won the Medal of Honor, that episode, it, you kind of 
showed it was more instinct. Like this is something that he was built for and he just acted and it just went through it and he survived. Whereas after the war and everything that came with that, the celebrity, the money, the figuring out how to, you know, stay away from selling his story, but still doing the right thing. It, it came across to me that after the war was much, much harder for him to navigate than anything he did while he was there in the war. He, he is a very complicated man and much more complicated I think than any account of him has, has ever shown much more complicated than the movie. He is not just the gee whiz hillbilly who happens to be a crack shot, who is, uh, you know, a, a, a devout Christian and who is divided over whether God will allow him to kill his fellow man. And then has this kind of all shucks demeanor when he, he captures 132 Germans and kills a lot more. He was much more complicated than that. And if you go back and you look at him, look at his circumstances, I think I can say from personal experience um, from my family being from that country, East Tennessee and, and across the Kentucky border and the Upper Cumberland was at that time and remained for a long time the most poverty-stricken part of the United States. There was no place that was more impoverished, more isolated. Uh, violence, alcoholism, uh, were all aspects of life, extreme violence uh, up in that area, those Scots-Irish people. They, they were people who could alternate between their wonderful storytellers, great cooks, very gentle, but they're perfectly capable and perfectly understanding what violence means. It's one reason that many of them, like York, turn to religious faith as a way of kind of disowning the uglier aspects of life there. York, like many religious converts, really clung to his new moral code, uh, to his faith. And he felt like any slight transgression could bring him right back to who he was before. You know, it could turn him into a, into a monster, as he thought he used to be. I think that's why he, he was worried about going off the fight. He was afraid that if he, he got into action, he got into combat, that it would be a flick of the switch and he would turn right into that man of cruelty and violence who he, he had once been. And in many ways, that's exactly what happens. You look at York during that during that uh, encounter. He he turns dead cold, absolutely dead cold, and doesn't just like shoot Germans from a safe and comfortable distance. He doesn't just shoot them down with his pistol as they're charging him. But but after he captures all these Germans, there are a couple of young Germans. One of them's just a kid, a teenager who try to play hero to try to take York out, York shoots him point blank in the head. I mean, face to face. You can imagine how he felt afterwards. You know that everything he had feared had come to pass. You know, he had, he had become a monster again. And the day after this action takes place, the story is not usually told. He gets a couple of stretcher bearers and he goes back to the battlefield and he's wandering over the battlefield sobbing and calling out for survivors. He just wants to to save life instead of killing lives, and he doesn't find anybody. He doesn't care if he gets Americans or Germans. He doesn't find anybody. He has tremendous guilt, tremendous guilt. And then they they bring him home, and they, they treat him like a hero, and they say, you know, you're the greatest man in the Army. 
uh, and everything, it, it caused a very deep conflict inside him. Uh, and that was the conflict he dealt with for the rest of his life. Well, I'll tell you, I hope Hollywood has called you, Ed, because that we haven't had something on this in about 20 years, as far as I could tell when I looked at it. So I think it's time to uh, redo this one Steven Spielberg style or something like that. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Brandon. That's all the questions I had. I really appreciate you taking the time. My pleasure, Brandon. Thank you so much. And that's it for this episode. Thank you so much, Ed, for coming on. Seriously, go out. Never in Finer Company came out in 2018. It's a fantastic book. It's one of my favorites. Whatever holidays you're celebrating, I hope they're happy. Maybe I'll see you in a couple days. Stay cool, nerds. Stay cool, nerds.